0: It is July 1st, 1916. We're in Japan, interestingly, uh, sitting with two British subjects who are having a child that will one day be an American and a French citizen. (laughs) You are here at the birth of Miss Dame, eventually, Olivia Mary de Havilland. And today's episode is a little bit different than normal episodes. We, um... Olivia is largely why we started this podcast, and so we wanted to take uh, an episode uh, just dedicated to her life and uh, the incredible work that she left behind.
1: That is absolutely true. That's so true. I love that you said that. Olivia really kind of is the reason why this podcast came about. That's absolutely accurate. So yes, welcome back everybody to our special episode. We've got Rance and Sam here, and we're just gonna take some time and just discuss her movies, um, everything about her. I'm gonna kick us off, Rance, with a pretty for big question for you. Okay, oh. you ready? We're You're gonna not- start it off big. I just I have to come up with things. <laughs> oh no. What is your favorite movie
0: of hers? Are we saying like uh what my favorite movie that she is in or my favorite like olivia de Havilland movie
1: all around movie performance the other characters matter too just if you could pick one movie of hers to watch which one would it be
0: you know i have long time felt as if gone with the wind was like my favorite film um you know, in, in recent months, in light of everything that's happened, I think it's, maybe my stance on that is softened a lot, um, for obvious reasons. Um, I still love the movie, um, and love her in the movie. Uh, but as far as just, I think, the all-around, the all-around, my, I think it's becoming the heiress. Mm-hmm. I think the heiress is just working its way up in my favorites of all time. It's just, it's that, it just is that every time I've seen it, it it's it's better than it was the time before. I relate to it more every time because I become more of a spinster each time I watch it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're naturally growing into that role, aren't you?
0: <laughs> yes, I really am <laughs>
1: What well, about I- you? I think that is a very solid choice. I agree with you. The Heiress is my favorite of her movies, too, for the exact same reasons you mentioned. It gets better every time I watch it, and everything about the movie is perfect, from the casting of it, the acting in it, the costumes, the way it's filmed, the screenplay. I think it is such a powerful piece of cinema that will stand the test of time. It already has.
0: You know, it's interesting Um We did a really great discussion of the heiress back on the 1949 episode. Feel free to really listen to us delve into it. We're going to do a little bit more than that in this episode. But um, a friend of mine posted uh, a picture of Olivia on the day she died, and then just a list of characters she played, and that was their tribute. And it made me really realize that for... A woman who um, retired, essentially retired, when she was still in her 40s, um, moved to France. Um, yeah, she moved to France in her 30s, actually. And then after that, she she didn't retire, but she worked a lot less frequently. And um, she just kind of stopped making things at a certain point, um, even though she probably could have gone on playing the old woman in any number of films um she just had a whole different life for the last two-thirds of her life but for somebody who who had a different 60 something years where she wasn't really connected with film this was a woman who truly had a hand in so many just exceptional films
1: Absolutely. Here's a question to kind of bounce off of that for you. So Mm -hmm. Olivia, she did retire from acting, sort of at like you know the peak, the prime of her roles. You know, I think a part of her was afraid of you know going the way a lot of aging actresses did during that time, where the roles left them, they became very sad and kind of bitter toward the industry. I think what she did was by leaving and kind of retiring early, she kind of protected herself a little bit. But I want to ask you, do you think if she had, let's say, stayed in L.A., in Hollywood, do you think her career would have gone more in the lines of, let's say, a Joan Crawford or maybe more in the lines of uh, Catherine Hepburn? Do you think she would have been able to maintain substantial roles well into the 60s and the 70s?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I think that she... I think that she would have been somewhere between that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't think she she didn't necessarily have the um, the gravitas that Catherine Hepburn had, you know, Mm -hmm. I think she was as good an actress as Catherine Hepburn. But um, I, you know, there was like something weird about Catherine Hepburn that just like uh for whatever reason her entire career she never she never had to sink to anything that was like below a certain standard and that's very unusual in terms of anyone's career. Joan Crawford was in a position where she just always needed to be working, I think more sure. than anything, like she needed the money. Um and uh oh man, damn, that's a really that's interesting, right? I I wonder cuz you know she Make a movie for three years
1: after. True, you know, I think it's it's very. I think it's a good question too. I'm curious about that. Just mainly because you know, it seemed like Olivia De Havilland into you know the later part of the '40s when she um, fought back with Warner Brothers and won. She was really able to pick and choose the roles she wanted, you know, and I wonder if she would have continued to have that freedom had she you know, stayed in Hollywood in later decades. I'm really curious. I wonder, you know, I don't know. Yeah, think like she... what didn't happen? Like, because
0: the thing is, like, the heiress, the reason that's so interesting to me is that's a moment right there. You know, that's a moment where you are, you know, she's 34 years old when she wins that Oscar, 33, 34 years old, um, and that you are at the top of Hollywood, you know? And you don't capitalize on that. She had just had a child too. That's part of it when that happened. Um, you don't capitalize on it by doing all this other stuff. Instead, you kind of stay away from the screen. She did some theater in the early 50s instead. Um, and then she comes back and she makes a movie called My Cousin Rachel in 1952. Um, And then she only works here and there through the 50s. And I looked at the box office grosses on the movies she made in the 50s. And all of them did pretty well. She's also, I wasn't aware of this until I looked at her filmography. She's in a movie called um, Not as a Stranger. Um, And it was apparently a really big, big hit. It had some other big names in it. And it was Stanley Kramer who made the movie. And I didn't even know she worked with Stanley Kramer. But the movie is not very widely available. So I guess that's why people don't really talk about it now. Um, but it's it's just interesting to me. She still had some pretty significant movies in the 50s. Um, I think she could have... I think she could have sustained... At least in a way like Barbara Stanwyck did. Mm. Maybe that's the best way. Because Barbara Stanwyck made movies that were pretty successful into the fifties and sixties. And she then got a TV show that was a big hit and won Emmy. And I I think that that would have been, I think Barbara Stanwyck is probably the best, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think it was a choice. I really think she just kind of, either she was sick of it or she just chose to step away and only come back if something really um, spoke to her. You know, so well,
0: go ahead. This is of the this is the thing that's so great about her career, though. This is why the fact that she did step away, I think, is part of what makes her so interesting and so unique, because she cho- she lived her life the way she wanted to. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. She didn't let Hollywood. She really, truly did not let Hollywood control her. I mean, like we we've already talked about on the podcast her historic court case oh yes um and so she she is one of the most pivotal figures in hollywood just because of that um and then she followed up the court case with a string of really excellent performances um and two oscars uh but it's just i think the the fascinating thing about her and the thing that made her living so long so cool and her um, going to Paris and doing all that. She just like had she was the Hollywood equivalent of a person who um, starts a career, is a self-made person, retires early because they did what they wanted to do and then lives the rest of their life doing what I mean, like if you she was a self-made woman, you know, absolutely accurate. Um, did you, you watched a couple movies in the last couple days, didn't you?
1: So I have, yes. I wanted to complete, um, all of her Oscar nominated performances, uh, kind of watch them all. So I did, um, I watched the snake pit and I watched, um, hold back the dawn. Uh, those are the the last two that I hadn't seen. I'd seen two, each his own, obviously, um, Gone with the Wind and The Heiress. But those are kind of the last two that I wanted to see. And they're both very good performances, both very different. I feel like that's a, a very strong thing uh, or quality that she had as well as the ability to pick such very different women to portray. And also pushing the boundaries every time she did that too, especially with a movie like The Snake Pit and trying mm. to shed light on how horrible... You know, um, asylums were for women back in the nineteen forties, and I mean that movie is brutal. The things it, that some of those nurses do—it's brutal yeah. to watch. It's been a while
0: since I watched the Snake but, but I remember being really like, "Oh, this is—they're going there. They really." Oh yeah, it's a very post World War Two movie in a lot of ways.
1: Very much so. You know, it's it's also very heady. You know, it's very like a, a you know a psycho analysis movie. It's kind of like. Sort of, in a way, like a male version of The Lost Weekend, but you're not dealing with alcoholism, but you are dealing with like, you know, thinking you're insane and your world unraveling around you, you know? So kind of similar, I guess, film noir subject matter in that sense of it, but a really interesting performance. Well,
0: it's so interesting that um, she's drawn to that after the contract break with Warner Brothers. You see this. She, you see her jumping from uh you know like i, I know that we're a little man on to each his own but i mean it's still as far as a, as a actor going to a role like you can see the appeal because you get to age 40 years and then you do the snake pit, which is just like a whole other thing and apparently she went to you know olivia de haviland never went to college for acting she didn't uh She was trained in the studio system, but she went and she visited psychiatric hospitals and she saw um, like electroshock, shock, shock treatments. Mm -hmm. She went and she did all of the work. And I think that's really her. It's a really it's a very good performance. Um, The heiress is her pinnacle. Like, I think I don't think it gets better than that. But the snake pit is probably the other really the other most interesting performance in her canon the heiress i think is just a slightly is a better movie overall but the snake pit is still very interesting
1: i agree with you yes you know and i think um yeah what you said completely hits it on the head and you're right To Each His Own isn't a bad movie. It's not a bad performance at all, and I can see why she'd be attracted to it. Also, the fact that the whole movie is kind of told in flashbacks, which is very, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a new, interesting thing, you know, developed in the early 40s film noir type stuff. What I found to be very, very interesting was when I watched Hold Back the Dawn, which— which takes
0: us back to that 1941 Best Actress race, where we really are upset that Joan Fontaine
1: won. <laughs> oh yes, Which is
0: the first mention of of Sister Joan. We've gone this far without mentioning Sister Joan,
1: and we must. <laughs> so yeah, so I watched it, and first of all, I had forgotten that Billy Wilder wrote the screenplay. Well,
0: that's why you know it's not going to. Why it's that's why you know something's going to be good because Billy Wilder.
1: Oh my gosh! Is yes,
0: writer, and this me- is also Let's point out that this was, she had a point in the uh, early 40s about her loan out roles being better than the roles she made at her home studio. And she was loaned out to Paramount to make this movie and got nominated. She had been loaned out to David O. Selznick to do Gone with the Wind. Um, and so her her she never got a nomination from her seven years at Warner brothers, she only got nominations for the loan outs that she was able to score. So,
1: yeah, uh, probably because Betty Davis took all the good parts, but that's another story. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Betty Davis said I, the, the actress, um, Ida Lupino, um, who was at Warner brothers, uh, used to call herself the poor man's Betty Davis because they would give her, they would give her the scripts that Betty Davis rejected. Um, I think Olivia, Olivia probably wasn't even in that situation because they don't—they weren't taking her that seriously, even with the two Oscar nominations, which was part of her whole beef with the studio. But um, Hold Back the Dawn, what did
1: you think? So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I think it definitely, like, when I watched it, I was like, oh, this is absolutely a Billy Wilder script. Just the way that it's told, the fact that it's in flashback, this guy's recounting the story, you know what I mean? It's very, like, this is very Billy Wilder. Um and she is there's just nobody can play like a sweeter, more saintly, but human person mm-hmm. better than she can. You know, for that role to work in hold back the dawn, you have to really care about her. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. you know what I mean, she can be thrown to the wayside, and the stories about child Charles Boy. But it's not. It's about her. And that's what I think is very interesting and what I liked about it the most. Um, I was slightly underwhelmed just because I thought it was going to be a bigger role for her. But she's hmm. sort of a secondary character, if we're being she, honest. She you know, is. best actress, I think, is fine. But it's 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 on a very thin line if that should be supporting actress or leading actress. But yeah. I digress. Um, very she's strong. She's
0: yeah, it's like it's a it's a kind of like Greer Garson, and um, mm-hmm. no, it's it's not as bad as Greer Garson and as because uh, that is definitely supporting, but um,
1: <laughs> far and away.
0: Um, but she, uh, but it, it it's like um, as far as a performance goes, that's that's a good example of how there's these other movies that are really solid that she's in. I, I think that you know. You mentioned how she plays the characters that are sweet yet they're human, mm-hmm. you know. And that's just something that because, um, you know, the character of Melanie in *Gone with the Wind* could very easily be a nuisance. Yes, but she brings this like quiet strength. Like um, the be- her one of her five best moments on film is at the at uh, Ashley's birthday party yes. at Gommetland, when um, Scarlet shows up in the red dress, and everyone thinks that Scarlet and, and Ashley are having an affair. And they're like, what is Melanie going to do when Scarlet walks through the door? And it goes silent. You see her in that red dress standing in the doorway. And then it the camera cuts to this incredible close-up of Olivia walking up to Vivian Lee. Um, And you don't know what she's going to do, but there's this mask of quiet determination. And then she greets her and accepts her. And it's just like the strongest little moment. And that's the kind of thing that Olivia could do. Oh, yeah. That not everybody everybody can do in a way that's interesting or... um, sympathetic
1: definitely and i think um there's a similar scene in hold back the dawn uh where the inspector hammock has discovered them and she gets pulled down and she's just been told by the other woman that the ring isn't hers you know she's basically the whole con has come to light and she protects him still she says it was her idea they get married and not his so even when like the worst thing is thrown at her she is still able to make the right choice and you know like the the better choice she's always like the better person it's like if i'm in that situation i would not be able to be that kind but she always is but like to um that in itself is a fault you know what i mean there's still some mess with all of her characters it just happens to be for these unbelievably kind reasons you know and she, only she can get away with it
0: it's yeah well, it, it's yeah i don't know And I think that's part of the thing that, you know, people talk about the snake pit, the snake pit and the heiress, which take her persona and kind of twist it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because she's, you know, in the snake pit, she's not just a good person. You know, she's, she's a few people. Um, (laughs) And then in the heiress, she becomes a very embittered person. Yes. Um, Stronger, but like, is she ever going to be happy? And, um... I, I, I feel like in a way those characters almost pull like having that on her filmography pulls a little bit from what her persona was and what she did so well in that persona. And it was basically take, you know, actually a movie that people probably, um, it's not a great film, but Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, um, mm-hmm. uh, does a really great job of turning her persona on its head. Yes. You know? Definitely. You should be... You You instinctively want the sympathies to go with Olivia to Havilland. And Betty Davis is the, is the sympathetic one. Yep. And she's crazy. And then Olivia comes in, and you think she's the nice one. And she ends up being the total psycho bitch. And it's wonderful. Yes. But she which shows the range again um did you you also watched
1: uh, adventures of robin hood oh yes i had to watch adventures of robin hood i really wanted to like see where she came from you know yeah. um and i wanted to see that that version of it and like what a production i was very caught off guard with The amount of, like, action that they actually had going on. Like, these people are really fighting. (laughs) It's like, my God. I mean, it's a beautiful
0: movie, too. Like, the Technicolor is... Oh, yeah. Insane. It's stunning. It's
1: Um, absolutely gorgeous.
0: It's, again, you can't take it with you for Adventures of Robin Hood. I just...
1: Oh my gosh! It's like no, I know, and it's it's such an unfair comparison. But you have to when you're going up for awards. The uh, they inevitably have to go up against each other. And you're right. I I would much rather watch Adventures of Robin Hood. I mean, just
0: to not to take it off Olivia for just a second, but the sword fight in the shadows,
1: so good, is so, and, and like that, it makes uh, Michael I was just going to say, with Michael Curtiz directing, it makes sense that it's also so wildly cinematic and gorgeous. Like, it just Uh, makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah. It was
0: good. But, I like, everything we think of as being Robin Hood, like, comes from this movie.
1: Literally, I was thinking about it. I was like, wow, the Disney animated Robin Hood literally just took this movie and turned them into animals. That's it. Like and even the, the Kevin the, Costner movie took this movie and made it an inconsistent accent, yes. and it <laughs> burned it in a pile of rubbish. That's what that one did. and added Sean Connery exactly. No but like you can trace every like the animal version of them in the Disney movie can be traced to the human person in this movie, especially the her um Olivia's maid, the older woman yes would that be her maid i guess yeah her yeah, maid like yeah, yeah. literally her is the actress she's in a bunch of stuff yes her it, she literally looks like that bird that she gets turned into in the disney version like she sounds like the kind of Cluck like i think her name is like clucky isn't it in the disney movie something, something yeah, like that yeah, but like i've seen it yeah but like i can totally see it it's like the disney people just oh, watched her like
0: yeah they just like let's just take this you know, the guy who plays uh, uh Little John is the dad of um uh, from Gilgan's Island, the uh, his name's Alan Hale. He's in a bunch yeah. of stuff, but Alan Hale Jr. was the skipper on Oh. You can pro- they look exactly alike. A
1: hundred percent. That's so true.
0: Plus Errol and Olivia have that chemistry together. You, you know, you can see why they made so many movies together because they look good together, too.
1: They really do. I was going to ask you, too. Would you say... Is is Errol Flynn your favorite of her co-stars?
0: Yeah. I Yes. I feel like most of the movies she makes without Errol Flynn aren't really about uh, the chemistry with her co-star, if that makes Very sense. Very true. Yes. You know, like, because The Snake Pit and The Heiress, um, to each his own, uh, those are all movies... That are are really just about her, you know, yeah. and and she also made um, she's in a really fun movie about twins called The Dark Mirror, uh, which is uh, it was like around the same time as um, Betty Davis did A Soul in Life, so that technology had just come in, and there's like a good twin and a bad twin, uh, um, and it's very film noir, and there's a murder mystery. Um, again, that's all about her, though. Um, the movie My Cousin Rachel is really interesting with her. Uh, it's based on a Daphne du More novel uh, who did Rebecca, um, the book Rebecca, I should say. And she um, she's with Richard Burton in that, and they have an interesting chemistry. Um, so she did work with uh, – like, she did a good job working with other actors, but there is something – Uniquely romantic about her chemistry with Errol Flynn. It's very natural. I I, I don't. I just think maybe their his cavalier
1: style works very well with her reserved style. Yes, I totally agree with you. Plus, they just would make the prettiest babies. Wouldn't I mean, they?
0: Good lord, they're so good looking. <laughs> like, um, is there anybody better looking than they are in the mid nineteen thirties? I mean, Jeez. like. Um, and they're so young when they're together. Like, is yes. like most of the movies they made, she was in her early to mid twenties, and he was in his uh, late twenties to early thirties. And their last, they made eight movies together in like six years or something like that. And um, and th- they're like just talking a little bit about her career in general because we've talked a lot about her work. Mm -hmm. You know, she um, was she was born in Japan very early on. She and her sister and her mom moved to California. Um, They weren't even supposed to land in California. They were going to go up to Canada, but they ended up staying here because uh, because Olivia got sick and stayed in Saratoga, California, which is a very small town outside of San Francisco. And so they were raised there in the small town community. Olivia was going to go to a teacher's college. Um, but the acting bug drew her in. But she got cast in this local production playing Puck in A Midsummer's Night's nice Dream. And she caught the attention of... Um, or the production was with... There is something... Max Reinhardt gets involved.
1: He came and, and saw it, yeah.
0: Yeah, he saw her... In the production, and um, had her read for Hermia, um, and then cast her in the production he was doing at the Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. um, which made her delay her scholarship because uh, she was had just graduated high school, and then Gloria Stewart was playing Hermia at the Hollywood Bowl in this production, and because of a movie, she had to drop out, and then the first understudy got sick or hurt themselves or something and so she the second understudy was the one who went on at the hollywood bowl and then when they made it and then when warner brothers invited max reinhardt to direct a film version of a midsummer night's dream they brought on olivia and then warner brothers put her under contract and um you know the, the whole rest is history but when she made Captain Blood, which is the first movie she made with with um, Errol Flynn. She had Midsummer Night's nice Dream and a couple other movies, like, in uh, the can. Mm-hmm. But she... Um, either nothing had been released yet or, like nothing, like, nothing with her above the title. Nothing to make her in a star had happened yet. And Errol Flynn had only been had only played a dead body in one movie. (laughs) And so when the two of them are cast in Captain Blood as the leads, they are unknowns. And it's Warner Brothers literally saying like, okay, these two just look really good together. We're just going to give this a shot. And then that movie ends up making bukus of money. And both of them become overnight sensations. And they ended up making eight movies together, which ends up being the most significant films that she made at Warner Brothers the last movie they made together was in 1941 it's called uh, they died with He." yeah they died with their boots on mm-hmm. um, it's about General Custer it's probably I haven't seen it I don't know if it's wildly offensive um, <laughs> dealing <laughs> with sub- subject matter it deals with um, but they the thing I have seen for that movie and you can find easily on YouTube is their um, goodbye scene Because the last scene they ever have together Is him saying goodbye to her Before he goes off to battle And ultimately gets killed in the story Because I don't know If if you know anything about General Custard You know that's what happens Right. Um, But their goodbye scene is wonderful And the last line he says to her Which TCM included in their tribute Is um, Walking through life with you Has been a very Gracious thing Oh isn't that nice? That's so nice. I like that. So they have a great... And apparently, they never consummated anything, but they were apparently both secretly in love with each other and never did anything about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. My gosh. Oh, and here's a fun story that's a little inappropriate. I saw this on an Errol Flynn documentary. Apparently, it took a lot of takes to do that scene where he comes to visit her... Um, uh, uh, he comes to her window and yes. Robin Hood, um, because uh, the kiss in that scene, uh, they had to film a few times because uh, Errol was um, showing through his tights.
1: <laughs> of course, he was. He was getting a little too excited.
0: And Olivia, t- Olivia tells that story in the <laughs> Errol documentary, and watching. Olivia, at like eighty-five or whatever she is in this documentary, um, talk about being. She's like, and then whoo, Errol, you see, was like a little uh, too into the scene. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> Just trying to be like the most like delicate about it. Uh, bless her heart. She's
0: she's super saucy. Um, yeah. So she just, like, you just look at her career, you see it build over these years, and then you see her reinvent herself um, and do these twists on her persona that are so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And she works with such amazing people, uh, such great directors, such great co-stars. She really is this through line for Hollywood that is... um, it was so amazing that she lived as long as she did. And this person who was such a connector and such a trailblazer uh, ended up being the last star.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that's very, very true. She is kind of the last true classic film star of that studio era. So then I want to ask you to kind of have a final thought on this. What do you think is her legacy? Um. A few years
0: ago... I. Uh, Jared Leto had issues getting out of a music contract
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and was being sued by the music company. And it was a long protracted legal battle. Mm-hmm. He ended up winning because he cited the de Havilland Law. Boom. Uh, that is not the first person who has done that in the last 75 years. Um I think her legacy is the fact that she provided freedom to artists.
1: I love that. Um, And she also showed that you can fight for what you want. You know, fight for what you believe in.
0: And you can do it while not being like, you know, you, you hear about the raging fights that... Bay Davis and Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart had uh, all of those are Warner Brothers, but you Catherine know, <laughs> Hepburn too. Those, you know, uh, yeah, uh, all of them going up against the studio heads and fighting, and you can see it because they are the personalities where you're like, well, of course they were like that. Right. Um, you don't have to be loud. You can be, you can be that that quiet threat. And, and Olivia, think, that you can do it and be have and still have grace in
1: class. That is exactly what I was going to say. I think above all, what she really is leaving behind is just a legacy full of class performances that show off her poise and her sweetness. And even with a de Havilland clause and winning um, that court case, she did it with grace. And I think that is such a beautiful thing.
0: There is uh, something that um, I saw earlier today. Okay, so uh, this is from uh, Robert Osborne's partner. Um, Because Robert Osborne was not publicly out during his lifetime, but he was gay. And um, his partner uh, posted a tribute to Olivia de Havilland uh, today, his name is David Stoller, or yesterday. Um, Robert Osborne and Olivia de Havilland were very close friends. And she is largely the reason that he became Robert Osborne. Olivia ended up being like his best old Hollywood friend. Um, and they would apparently talk every single Sunday. So when he obviously got his partner, he she had to like him too, obviously. So this is a story from David Stoller, all right? My Bob and I were staying at the (laughs) Trinan Palace uh, Versailles Hotel and planning on never leaving unless they threw us out. The phone rang. I answered. Well, it's you, is it? Came her voice. Oh, good heavens, says I. A suitable response. Is our boy there? Good. Bring him and champagne at my house at three today. Click. Well, we'd spoken over the phone, but we'd never met in person. The concierge arranged for a car to Paris and the brand of bubbly she demanded. We arrived as the church bell sounded when the French windows above flew open and leaning out onto the little Juliet balcony, looking as if she were about to jump while scanning the skies. She launched into, "O oh Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Bob began to call out, but Juliet was on a roll and sailed right over him up until Romeo's first cue. Bob and I just looked at each other. She would not be stopped. Continuing with the most thrillingly theatrical intonation, while lifting up her hands to heaven, she pleaded, and for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Pause. She then, for the first time, stared down upon me with lifted eyebrows, and before I could think, off I went. I take thee at thy word. And on we danced until Juliet tearfully implores, if they do see thee, they will murder thee. To which she added, unless you've brought the champagne, do come in before the neighbors expect any more. This was how I first met Olivia de Havilland. She had been responsible in 1977 for helping set the course of events that forever changed Bob's life. And they spoke almost every Sunday. When Bob left us, she and I kept in touch. She was a Shaw fanatic and enjoyed discussing his more obscure plays. When we last spoke for her birthday, she reminded me that I must never lose hope to believe in the future and how annoyed she was that she didn't expect to be around to see Trump trounced. So I share this with you. Don't lose hope, believe, trouncing awaits, and don't forget the champagne.
1: Oh my gosh, that's perfect. What an image of Olivia on a Juliet balcony. That's beautiful, I, that's I love exactly that.
0: That's exactly how I wanted to picture her too. That's
1: you exactly know? how I want to picture Just her. living
0: her life, um, holding court in her little
1: Paris villa. Absolutely beautiful, lovely. Well, that was our special episode about Olivia Haviland. So join us again next week as we go back to our regularly scheduled programming. We 92. will be you. Dis- exactly, and we will be discussing the greatest show on earth next week. So we'll be with you then.